Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In 40 CE, across the Red River Delta in modern northern Vietnam, there came a great cacophony of noise. The clans began to ring great bronze bells, calling them to war. They'd endured years of subjugation and oppression, and now was the time to fight back. As each bell rang out, its noise was heard by the next clan, and then the next, and the next. Soon the whole delta was alive with the sound of the drums. A call to war, started by two sisters who sought to end Chinese domination and save their culture from extinction. Welcome to the other half. Episode 2.4, Trung Truck, Here Come the Drums. Last time, we finished our two-parter on Boudicca, seeing her final battle against the Romans, and how her story and legend morphed over the centuries as her memory was examined and appropriated by everyone from Elizabethan playwrights and Stuart poets to suffrage campaigners and second-wave feminists. Today, we are examining Trung Truc, the leader of Vietnam's first great rebellion against Chinese rule. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that you probably haven't heard of her. That's okay. I hadn't either before I started this. In fact, that's my favourite thing about doing a history podcast, finding out amazing stories and sharing them with you. This is a story, in fact, very much like that of Boudicca, It's one of rebellion against a foreign invader. It's a personal story of revenge by a wronged widow. And it is one of glorious failure, later appropriated by later writers to form a national story. They even took place at around the same time, with Trung Truc's final battle happening around 17 years before Boudicca's defeat at the Battle of Watling Street. It's there, though, that the stories diverge. Trung Truc, in fact, achieved far more than the fleeting success of Boudicca, as we shall see, 
and her later impact on her country was even greater than her fellow warrior queen. But before we get into the story, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon supporters who keep this show on the road. I'd especially like to thank listener Amelia, who has recently supported the show on Patreon. If you too would like to support me on Patreon, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. And finally, just to say, I am very far from being a confident pronouncer of Chinese and Vietnamese. I've done my best to get it right, but I beg your forgiveness if I get it wrong. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. In 1967, as the Vietnam War raged, political scientist and war correspondent Bernard B. Fall addressed the American Naval War College. Vietnam's history, he said, resembled a Greek tragedy. Whenever things appear to be going well, everyone is murdered or betrayed. The best of intentions are insufficient against the tide of fate, and everything eventually collapses into gloom and doom. He described Vietnam's history as being one of constant struggle against subjugation. First by the Chinese, then the Mongols, then the Chinese a few more times, and then finally by the French. Each of these occupiers faced native uprisings, many of which saw temporary success, but each either collapsed or led to periods of civil strife that caused as much suffering as foreign domination. He ended his lecture by stating, quote, Vietnam's Greek tragedy still continues, but we can at least hope that there will be light in the morning. Full would not live to see if his hope would be realised, as he was sadly killed by a landmine along with his photographer while accompanying American marines on patrol in southern Vietnam. Now, this image of Vietnamese history is, of course, somewhat simplistic, but it does get to the heart of how the Vietnamese people have viewed it. Their national heroes and heroines are not great conquerors, they're great rebels. When they face great hardship, they look back to those great rebels for inspiration. And none more so than the original Vietnamese rebels, Trung Truc and her younger sister Trung Nhi. Now, you may have noticed I said two names there, but only one of them is in the title of the episode. There are two reasons for this. First, the format of the show is to examine one woman at a time, and so, for the sake of continuity, it's important to just have one. And, as we shall see, the Trung sisters fought together and were venerated together, but the eldest, Trung Truk, was the more senior. And the second reason is that, as an elder sibling myself, I have instinctive sympathy with my fellow kin against the attention-seeking, love-stealing younger upstarts. Okay, let's start this with a little bit of geography. Modern Vietnam, united after what they call the American War in 1975, hugs the western coastline of the South China Sea, from the border with China all the way around to the Gulf of Thailand. These are not the country's original borders, though. 
The first Vietnamese emerged in around 2900 BCE in the northeast of the country, centred around the delta of the Red River, also sometimes called the Hong River. The stories of these early Vietnamese and their rulers, the Hong Dynasty, are bound up in myth and legend. Their society was based around large clans rather than nuclear families and was highly matriarchal. Mothers had a great deal of control over the lives of their children and women were free to choose their sexual partners and husbands. They were also expected to fight in wars and it was not unusual for them to be in positions of power in their clans. In 111 BCE, this region and territories to the south as well were conquered by the great regional superpower. China. Compared to the Vietnamese clans, China was an incomparably larger and more politically sophisticated state, controlling an empire that spanned around 1.6 million square kilometres. This is a little smaller than China is today, but by the standards of the time, it was utterly immense. To give some context, the Roman Empire, at its greatest extent, was only around 5 million square kilometres. China was ruled at the time by the Han Dynasty, one of its most celebrated ruling dynasties, and its rulership over Vietnam was relatively light touch. It sent governors and garrisons, but mostly it left the Vietnamese to do their own thing, so long as they paid their taxes and didn't cause trouble. However, things changed in the first half of the first century CE. A period of civil war within China saw the Han dynasty overthrown for around 25 years or so, and when it was restored under the emperor Guangwudi, the new regime was keen to make some significant changes throughout the empire to ensure that his dynasty would not be challenged again. Firstly, all that warring had racked up quite a bill, so taxes had to be raised throughout the empire. And second he sought to impose Chinese values and philosophy on parts of the empire that had previously followed their own ways. These were the values of the great Chinese philosopher Confucius, and although he had been dead for several hundred years by that point, his ideas were embraced by the Han dynasty, who made them central to their education system. Now, much like this is not a military history podcast, this is not a history of philosophy podcast. But... In a nutshell, one of the central tenets of Confucianism was the importance of hierarchy to maintaining a well-functioning society. Everyone must know their place, be content to remain in their place, and be obedient to their social betters. And at the top of the pile, of course, was the emperor. But this didn't just apply to political structures. In Confucian thinking, a woman was always subservient to a man. She must submit to her father before marriage, her husband after it, and then her sons should she become a widow. As you might imagine, Confucius was also not a fan of a woman wielding political power. Amongst his sayings include the following. Disorder is not sent down by heaven, it is produced by women. Women are to be led and to follow others. And a woman ruler is a hen crowing. The main intentions of these new Chinese reforms was to break apart the Vietnamese clans into smaller nuclear family structures with a man at the top. This made them easier to control and, most importantly, to tax, but was completely against traditional Vietnamese values. 
a law was passed ordering all men and women to marry to bring this vision about. And huge mass weddings took place, with hundreds or even thousands of couples forced to tie the knot. Imposing this ideology on Vietnam therefore caused resentment to simmer. But things didn't boil over for around a decade or so, when a new Chinese governor called Su Ting took office. He was, well, let's just say that history has not been entirely generous towards him. Even Chinese sources identify him as the worst, calling him corrupt and cruel, overburdening the Vietnamese with crippling taxes to line his own pockets. Speaking of Chinese sources, let's take a quick break before we get into the action of the rebellion to examine what our sources are. Like with Boudicca, our main resource for the Trung sisters comes from the pens of their enemies, in this case the Chinese, and from long after the action took place. This is the Book of the Later Han by Fan Ye, which was written in the 5th century CE, around 300 years after the Trungs rose up against the Chinese. We don't start getting sources from Vietnamese pens for about one and a half thousand years after the event, although we are told that those authors had access to materials from the 1st century CE to work from. However, since those no longer exist, it's hard to corroborate that. The most significant of these was the complete annals of Dai Viet, an officially commissioned history of Vietnam compiled between the 13th and 15th centuries. We'll come back to that a little later to talk about the more traditional Vietnamese accounts, but it's worth saying that even these are mostly working off Chinese records. Our impression of this period in Vietnamese history is therefore indelibly coloured by Chinese ink. Okay, so back to the action. The actions of this Chinese governor caused a great number of tribal leaders across Vietnam to complain about their treatment. These included a man called Thi Suc and his wife Trung Truc. Thi Suc was the regional prefect and his complaints began to cross the line of what the Chinese administration was willing to accept. The Book of the Later Han describes him as being of a, quote, fierce temperament, but it seems likely that all he was doing was standing up for his people and his culture, fearing that both would soon be crushed under the weight of Chinese oppression. Now, the Chinese sources next claim that, for these crimes, Tisak was put to death, and it was because of that that his wife, Truk Truk, led the Vietnamese uprising in revenge. However, this has been disputed by some later historians, including Keith Weller Taylor, possibly the most respected Western scholar of early Vietnamese history. In his seminal work, The Birth of Vietnam, he writes that, quote, There is no evidence for this idea. Surely it came from the patriarchal bias of the later centuries, which could not countenance a woman leading a rebellion and being recognised as a queen while her husband still lived. This would seem to chime with our knowledge of early Vietnamese society, being one in which female power was embraced rather than repressed. Whichever is true, though, what we do know for sure is the actions of the Chinese governor roused the ire, most especially of Trung Truc, and it is she that stirred her people into rebellion. So who was this woman? Well, I'd love to tell you what she looked like, but so far as I can tell, none of the sources have bothered to furnish us with that information. We don't know her age either, that would be asking far too much. But again, let's not get bogged down with what we don't know, as we'll be here all day. We do know 
that she was the daughter of the prefect of Mei Lin, an area that is now a suburb of the Vietnamese capital Hanoi. We know that she had a younger sister, Trung Nhi, and that their father took great care in their education. They were well-versed in literature, but also, like all Vietnamese women, they were trained in the martial arts as well. As aristocratic women, they would not only have been taught how to fight, but also how to lead soldiers in battle. Trung Truk is described as having a, quote, brave and fearless disposition. And it is she that mobilised the tribal leaders of Vietnam into the revolt against Xu Ting and the Chinese. One of the great artefacts that we have from this period of Vietnamese history are the Dong Sung drums, huge, beautifully decorated bronze drums, some weighing up to 100 kilograms or around 220 pounds. Like with ancient Greek pottery, these were decorated with scenes of war and everyday life and were kept by the Vietnamese clans to communicate with each other, especially in times of war. And so, in the spring of 40 CE, the drums of Vietnam rang out at Trung Truc's command, like the beacons of Gondor. All throughout the Red River Delta, the oppressed Vietnamese would have heard those drums, and known that their time had come to finally fight back. This revolt has a distinctly female flavour. Not only was Trung Truc in command, but her sister was right by her side, and other noblewomen from every clan led soldiers into battle. Even their own mother was said to be amongst them. The Trung sisters commanded their troops on mighty war elephants, and their numbers were too great for the small Chinese garrisons in Vietnam. Governor Su Ting fled, with the Chinese sources saying that, quote, he opened his eyes to money, but closed them when it came to punishing the rebels. He feared to go out and attack them. In a very swift campaign, the Chinese were thrown out of 65 Vietnamese cities and were sent scurrying north for safety. The Vietnamese people celebrated their success by proclaiming Trung Truc as their queen, with her sister Trung Nhi as her companion. Note that her husband is not mentioned. He may have been married to the queen, but he was no king. She made a capital in her birthplace of Mei Lin and started by ending the crushing taxes that had caused them all to rise up in the first place. A perfect start. She ruled benignly and with a light touch, favouring trade with her neighbours and aiming to turn the clock back, say, around a 100 years or so to before the Chinese had arrived. Her aim was to recreate the golden age of ancient Vietnam. We don't know if Queen Trung Truc spent much time preparing for a Chinese counterattack, but it seems that she hoped that, having been thrown out of the province and with them being so far away from the centre of Chinese power, perhaps Emperor Guangwudi would leave her and her people alone in peace. But, of course, that was never going to happen. First of all, Vietnam was a prosperous cash cow for the Chinese, and Guangwudi's administration was short on money. But second, and perhaps more importantly, the Emperor of China could not countenance being defeated by a woman. 
Every moment that she remained on the Vietnamese throne was an attack on his manhood. He had to take it back to prove the superiority of Chinese men over the women of Vietnam and the cowering men that allowed themselves to be ruled by them. He prepared an army to go south and take back his province. He appointed a grizzled, experienced general called Ma Yuan, who was fresh from suppressing another rebellion to lead it. As was common at the time, he was given a fancy title. He was called the General Who Calms the Waves, which is a rather charming way of saying that his job was to crush the rebel scum. He and the Emperor, though, took their time, raising a trained army, building new roads and bridges, and preparing a steady and secure supply line to make sure that the army would have everything that it needed. The terrain of Vietnam, with its dense forests and high mountain peaks, was not ideally suited to the Chinese army, and would not provide quick victory. This was the reason for their patience, and so it was more than two years until Chinese boots once again stepped on Vietnamese soil. This army was some 20,000 strong, and was a formidable foe for Trung Truk's Vietnamese. The sources are unclear whether the Chinese march was challenged by the Vietnamese, but it seems they made it to the Red River Delta unmolested. One would have thought the best strategy would have been to harass the Chinese army all the way with guerrilla tactics, utilising their superior knowledge of the terrain. If that did happen, history doesn't record it. What seems clear is that Trung Truk was very careful to carefully pick and choose the moment of her encounter with the Chinese, looking to destroy their army in one climactic battle, rather than endure a long, drawn-out guerrilla campaign. Trung Truk's patience in waiting to engage reaped rewards, as malarial fever, dysentery and other diseases ravaged the Chinese army. The Chinese general Ma Yuan later recalled, quote, Rain fell, vapours rose, there were pestilential emanations, and the heat was unbearable. I even saw a sparrowhawk fall into the water and drown. Seeing her enemy so weakened, and gathering a force that greatly outnumbered the invaders, Trung Truk decided to attack. The location for the battle was Langbak, a hilly region overlooking a lake where the Chinese supply fleet Lair Anchor. The sources are unclear as to whether she led the army personally or if it was her sister, Trung Nhi, that was in command. Whoever it was, they were leading their troops into a slaughter. The Chinese army may not have been at full strength, but they were still a formidable and disciplined force, one that had conquered and maintained a vast empire. While the Vietnamese charged in disorganised and chaotic masses, the Chinese stood firm and withstood all that was thrown at them. We don't have much in the way of figures, but many thousands of Vietnamese lay dead, and many more were captured at the cost of relatively few Chinese. The Trung sisters managed to escape the field, and fled west to their ancestral power base. There, Trung Truk linked up with their remaining forces, and dug in for what would be a protracted struggle. Now, again, the sources somewhat differ in the conduct of the rest of the war, but if we take a broad strokes approach, we can say that the Chinese advanced slowly and methodically. 
Chung Chuk's early popularity, born from the success of her rebellion, quickly faded. Desperate to maintain morale and the loyalty of the tribal leaders, she periodically offered battle, but was defeated at every turn. Eventually, a year or two after the invasion, Chung Chuk and her sister were captured by the Chinese and were executed. Their heads sent north to the imperial court as trophies. Now, traditional Vietnamese sources give a slightly different end to the Trung sisters, saying that, realising they could not win, they drowned themselves, rather than allowing themselves to be captured. This, though, seems to be an attempt to provide some sort of a heroic ending for the Trung sisters, and is unlikely to be true. Their deaths, though, was not the end of the rebellion, and it took even more men and even more ships to put down the fires that Trung Truk had lit. It wasn't pretty work. The sources tell us that thousands of Vietnamese were executed and many more were forcibly deported. But this military victory was only part of Ma Yuan's task in Vietnam. It was only, in fact, the first phase. The next step was cultural genocide. His simple goal was to convert the region into being a full Chinese province. No longer would Chinese rule be light touch, Now, the Vietnamese had to become Chinese, whether they liked it or not. The ruling families were removed, decapitating the traditional Vietnamese power structure, and Chinese Confucian values forcibly imposed. The great bronze drums that had called out the rebellion were confiscated. We're told that these were melted down to create a massive bronze horse, which was sent to the emperor in China as a victory token. Somewhat of an unwieldy gift, but quite the power move. The Chinese garrisons were reimposed and bolstered, and the hated taxes were reinstated and collected. Most importantly, Vietnamese children were taken and sent to China to be educated. There they were instilled with the values of their conquerors. Generation by generation, the old Vietnamese ways and customs were supplanted by Chinese ones. Of course, there were always some that kept the old ways and remembered the glory days of old. But for most of the people of Vietnam, the priority became one of survival. And this really set the rhythm for much of the rest of Vietnamese history, where their struggle against their enemies was front and centre. To quote historian Keith Weller-Taylor, quote, the struggle for cultural survival became closely identified with the more basic problem of physical survival under an exploitative alien regime. Unlike Japanese culture, for example, which grew up beyond the reach of external threats, Vietnamese culture has preserved very little that is not directly related to national survival. The Chinese continued to rule in Vietnam for another 900 years following the death of Trung Truc, though she was far from the last woman to rise up in revolt. In the 3rd century, for example, a woman called Lady Triu led a band of a thousand warriors in a six-month insurgency campaign against the Chinese. Like the Trung sisters, she led troops on war elephants. But unlike them, she also had to fight against Vietnamese patriarchal views opposing women commanding armies. When her brother tried to persuade her not to lead the rebellion, she is reported to have said, I only want to ride the wind and walk the waves. 
slay the big whales of the Eastern Sea, clean up frontiers and save the people from drowning. Why should I imitate others, bow my head, stoop over and be a slave? Why resign myself to menial housework? In the second half of the 6th century, the Vietnamese had a more successful war of independence, this time led by men, which managed to secure 60 years of home rule before the Chinese retook the region again. While the stories of the Trung sisters undoubtedly circulated and were remembered by the Vietnamese, it's not until the 13th century, when Vietnam was finally ruled by its own emperor, that we finally have written accounts by Vietnamese historians about them. In the first comprehensive history of Vietnam, completed in 1272, Le Van Hu wrote that, quote, Trung Truc and Trung Nhi were women, they gave one shout and all the prefectures responded to them. And, establishing the nation, they proclaimed themselves queens as easily as turning over their hands, which shows that our land of Vietnam was able to establish a royal tradition. What a pity that, for a thousand years after this, the men of our land bowed their heads, folded their arms and served the northerners. How shameful this is in comparison with the two Trung sisters, who were women. Ah, it is enough to make one want to die. So here, the historian is trying to make some link between the current ruling dynasty and the Trung sisters, who are clearly being held up as patriotic heroes. They're seen as being kind of the Spartans at Thermopylae, or Davy Crockett at the Alamo. Glorious failures that set the stage for ultimate victory. But more interesting to us is how Le Van Hu deals with gender here. If we look at it loosely, one could see it as a celebration of female power, but it isn't that at all. He is instead decrying the weak, docile masculinity of the generations of men that followed the Trungs. He clearly sees men as being inherently more powerful and more worthy than women, and so it is a damning indictment on the men of Vietnam that they were shown up by two mere women. And this became the traditional lesson that Vietnamese historians drew from the story of the Trung sisters for many centuries. One 15th century poet wrote, quote, All the male heroes bowed their heads in submission. Only the two sisters proudly stood up to avenge the country. And a popular 17th century poem went even further. Just a note here that Giao Chi is the Chinese name for a Vietnamese person at the time. Quote, the Han Emperor was extremely furious, this insignificant speck of a Gao Chi. And it was not even a man, but a mere girl who wielded the skill of a hero. It is also around this time that writers began to romanticise the relationship between Trung Truc and her husband, Ti Suk. Her motivation from rebellion moved from being one of love of country to being one of revenge for the death of her husband at Chinese hands and a desire that no one else should suffer the same fate. This serves to wash away some of the male hand-wringing about how it was a woman that led the first great Vietnamese rebellion. Because now, it is not a woman at the centre of the story. It's a man. What they're effectively saying is that the real hero was T. Suk, as it was his death that led to the rebellion. Trung Truc was not leading a rebellion for her own sake, it was for that of her husband. 
is in fact taking away quite a bit of her agency. We also see some historians, such as Carl Hugh Din, espousing the classic male reasoning for the failure of female-led rebellions, that they were defeated because they didn't follow male advice. We saw that with Boudicca, and trust me, we're going to see a lot of it in future episodes. In this particular case, it can be put down to the successful infiltration of Confucian values into Vietnam. In this tradition, the Trungs failed because they didn't respect the proper hierarchy, which is men first, women second. Throughout all of this, the Trung sisters were not just figures of historical record and legend, they became cult and spiritual icons. Like Christian saints, they were able to give aid at times of need to the worthy and were venerated and worshipped. One 15th century writer wrote, quote, Her heroic courage was not limited to her lifetime achievements of establishing the nation and proclaiming herself queen, but after her death she also resisted misfortune, for in times of flood or drought prayers to her spirit have never gone unanswered, and it is the same with her younger sister. There are no greater spirits in all of heaven and earth. Shrines began to appear to their cult, and not just ordinary people but kings and emperors went to pray for deliverance. One 12th century king went to their temple and ordered the priests there to pray. Immediately the heavens opened and the Trung sisters appeared to the king in a vision, appearing as, quote, two pretty-faced women with willowy eyebrows wearing green robes over red garments, with red crowns and sashes, astride iron horses, passing by with the rain. In gratitude, the king built further temples to their memory and gave them honorary appointments in his administration in an attempt to associate their cult with his rule, a practice that was frequently repeated down the centuries. And we have accounts of the continuation of their worship throughout the last thousand years. Writing in 1715, one scholar described one such temple in Pulog in the northeast of the country. Quote, The temple hall is majestic and well cared for. People enter with dignity and depart with reverence. On festival days for welcoming spirits, the local people perform in battle array with elephants and horses. Their bearing is truly frightening. Anglung and Haloi also observe ceremonial sacrifices to the spirits of the Trung ladies, using imperially appointed implements. The ancestral images in these places are magnificent. Travellers passing by these shrines stop and visit. Literary men and poets spontaneously intone the theme of their heroism. Thus, the two immortal ladies will never die. This shows us clearly how the memory of the Trung sisters was kept alive down the centuries. Moving forward into the 19th and 20th centuries, Vietnam once again found itself invaded and ruled by a foreign power, this time by the French. Those that wished to inspire others to fight against the imperial invaders once again sought to invoke the memory of the Trung sisters to inspire men and women to fight. Books and pamphlets were printed and circulated that held the Trung sisters up as the supreme example of Vietnamese femininity and heroism. The qualms that were once held about them being women were cast aside. 
the people of Vietnam needed heroes, and the Trungs were perfect for this role. Pan Boy Chow, one of Vietnam's most important nationalist writers and thinkers of the early 20th century, certainly recognised this, and wrote what can only be described as a hagiography to the Trung sisters. His goal was to foster an independent national story for Vietnam to promote his cause of Vietnamese independence. His Trung truck is very deferential towards the men in her life, only going to war after her husband was killed and not initially leading the uprising, instead asking her nephew to take charge. Only after he is slain, and there is no other suitable man to replace him, does she take over command, saying that, quote, Now we cannot behave as ordinary women. We must see to military matters. Ironically, for a writer asserting Vietnamese independence, this plays more into the Chinese tradition of female power rather than harking back to traditional Vietnamese values, and is a demonstration, if nothing else, that nationalists so often hark back to a time that isn't really all that old and isn't really all that unique. But the real purpose of this drama is to embed the Trung sisters as the genesis moment for Vietnam. They fought a great empire, and so now must their descendants in colonial Indochina. Like the Trung sisters, they may not succeed at first, but they will prevail in the end. Other propaganda at the time sought to portray the Trung sisters not as warriors per se, but as mothers of the nation, casting them in a more traditionally feminine light. This was partly because this sort of thing was more likely to get past the French censors, but also again playing down the awkwardly quote-unquote masculine activity of the Trung sisters and playing up their feminine attributes. This continued throughout the colonial period, through the Second World War and into the French Indochina War, which took place between 1946 and 1954. But in that latter conflict, we see the infiltration of Marxist ideology into the Trung story. Unsurprisingly, these versions of the tale focus on the collective struggle of the Vietnamese people rather than lauding the Trung sisters in particular, whose royal pretensions possibly made them a bit problematic in communist eyes. There's a lot of talk of imperial masters and devilish collaborators who needed to be overcome and slain. The iconography changed too, with red flags being inserted into images to link them to contemporary communism, with the emphasis being very firmly on collective armed struggle. The attitude towards women changed again, with the role of women leading troops into battle and acting as foot soldiers being celebrated rather than watered down as had been for so many centuries. This is because the Viet Minh, the armed wing of the Vietnamese Communist Party, were looking to encourage women to fight for them against the French, Japanese and of course later the Americans. As I'm sure you know, after the French Indochina War, Vietnam was split in two along the 17th parallel, with the Soviet and Chinese-backed communists ruling the north and the western-backed government in the south. When war broke out in the 1960s, the North Vietnamese called up women to fight in a number of ways. They drove supply trucks, tracked the Ho Chi Minh trails to supply guerrillas and insurgents in South Vietnam, but also picked up guns and fought on the front lines. 
To these women, the Trunk Sisters were real sources of inspiration. With their struggle against Chinese invaders and against overwhelming odds linked to their fight against the technologically superior American and Allied forces. After the war and the reunification of the country in 1975, Vietnam was finally at peace and, relatively, free from outside attack. And so the priority moved to nation building. Vietnam was more or less adrift at this time, having fought a brief war against the Chinese and seen their great ally, the Soviet Union, decay and collapse, so needed to forge a unique identity of their own. Once again, they looked to the Trung sisters. If you look at popular history in Vietnam right now, particularly books that are aimed at children, you will see a subtle change in the portrayal of Trung Truk from the war years. Whereas before, her role had been downplayed in favour of the collector struggle, now she has reclaimed her place at the head of the fight. She is seen as the great leader of a mass movement against outside oppression, a true paragon of collectivism and patriotism for all children, especially young girls, to look up to. Today, shrines to Trung Truk and Trung Nhi are still popular sites of worship in Vietnam. The greatest of these is Hai Ba Trung Temple in Hanoi, where statues of the two women stand looking down at onlookers. This temple is also home to the biggest festival in celebration of the Trung Sisters. Taking place between the 3rd and the 6th day of the second lunar month, which is usually in late February to mid-March, it is marked with a great procession, led by two women dressed as the Trung Sisters riding on elephants. Behind them are women dressed as soldiers of the period, along with musicians, dancers and flag bearers. Offerings are carried on ornate litters and presented to the shrine, and the whole thing is looked on and participated in by thousands of people. The festival also sees other cultural activities like wrestling, human chess and dragon dances. The Trinity Sisters' memory is also kept alive in books and films, including one called She Kings, which is in production now. When US President Donald Trump visited Vietnam in 2018, he remarked on the patriotism and independent spirit of the Vietnamese and American people. He said that, quote, The Trung Sisters first awakened the spirit of the people in this land. It was then that, for the first time, the people of Vietnam stood for your independence and your pride. Today, the patriots and heroes of our histories hold the answers to the great questions of our future and our time. They remind us of who we are and what we are called to do. And with that, I will leave you for this week. Now, I'm actually going off on a holiday tomorrow, so you'll have to wait until the 2nd of October for your next episode. Remember, you can speak to other listeners on the Lyceum app, and be sure to check out our Twitter account for updates on the show. Stay safe out there, and I'll be back very soon.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.